Ghouls. Happy Hump Day and welcome to Ghoul Friends Podcast, brought to you by your best ghoul friends, Lucy and Lindsay. Grab your blankets, snacks and good vibes for tonight's sleepover, where the category is always horrifically spooky. If you want to keep up with us on the socials, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at GhoulFriendPod on Twitter and GhoulFriends underscore podcast on Instagram. You can also listen to us on all podcasting platforms where we release new episodes every Wednesday. And if you want to follow me on my personal socials, you can find me on Twitter and Twitch at Lulu underscore Pew. And I'm at Hi It's Lindsay underscore on all social media. Now let's get spooky. Hello, gorgeous, gorgeous girls, and welcome to another episode of Girlfriends. Your girl's back after having a complete disaster last week, and I'm so ready to chat through movies with my best girl, Lucy. How are you doing? I'm good. I missed you last week, and it was your movie, Hotel Transylvania, which is like your favourite movie. It's the one uh, you die on. <laughs> absolutely raging but something happened in the morning it completely threw my day off and I was just like messaging I was like I can't record today I'm really sorry uh, but the show went on without me uh, I've still I've yet to listen to it which is really bad I normally listen to podcasts and I have a bath I've not had a bath since Wednesday so I've not had a chance to listen to it yet but I will get around to it because I'm very curious uh, to see what you and Nick thought of both of the films um, but we're very lucky today. We've got a guest with us. We are joined by Emma from The Monstrous Feminine. How are you doing, Emma? Hi, I'm doing great. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm obsessed with both of you, so I'm very excited <laughs> to be here. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> so today we are having a 70s night and we are going to look at two amazing horror films from the 1970s. We are going to be looking at Phantom of the Paradise and Jaws. So two very, very different films. Um, Emma, you picked 70s Night. What attracted you to 70s Night? That's a great question. I I mean, I think the simple answer is just like, I'm obsessed with the 70s and (laughs) it's also my favorite decade of horror and I'm obsessed with horror films. So it's kind of like all of my interests collided (laughs) into one theme. Um, I love how stylistic 70s horror and film in general is. Um, And I just think that a lot of the themes that are explored throughout the whole decade are really fascinating. Um, And I feel like it's just this really interesting, cool transition, um, like this, that whole 10 year stretch um, in horror, as well as, you know, film in general, it was kind of shifting out of this, uh, out of the kind of mid-century. And so it's, it's, just such a fascinating decade but mostly it's just like super stylish and that's what I'm obsessed with <laughs> absolutely you definitely see that with um Phantom of the Paradise um, oh yeah we'll get into it properly in a bit but I remember messaging someone and I was like this is the kind of film you watch if you've had an edible or something <laughs> oh yeah for sure <laughs> it's just so <laughs> colorful and wild yeah it's an explosion um, of color <laughs> Um, so Emma, do you want to tell us a wee bit more about your corner of the internet um, 
let our fans know where you come from what you what you get up to yeah absolutely so um i'm a director producer costume designer and um the co-creator of the queer femme-led horror and genre film collective uh monstrous femme films uh that i run with my best friend hannah and um, i also host the feminist horror podcast to die for and that's where we analyze culture and like the history of the genre and mostly like identity of beloved horror characters um, and films through the lens of costume design and fashion history and just kind of how that all can um, influence each other. And I host that with um, my friend Jolene, who's also an amazing costume designer. And yeah, um, with Monstrous Femme, like we, our main thing is that we make progressive horror films that are, uh, that, that are highly stylized, um, political, um, oftentimes retro. Hannah and I are very, very into um, like fashion history, film history, um, retro films and aesthetics. Um, we're both like lifelong vintage collectors. And so we kind of like shoved that interest in with our interest in the horror genre and exploring kind of like the human psyche through horror. Um, and yeah, we just kind of became like, we were like, we have to be collaborators for life. This is so much fun. Uh, and so, yeah, that's what we do with Monstrous Femme. We are currently in post for our third film. Um, we've been making a collection of short short uh, short horror films uh and um this one's our biggest one yet and so we're really really excited about it right now um it's called baby fever um it's a pro-choice 70s prom body horror um and hannah directed it um and co-wrote it with um alex hartwig and um i produced and costumed and art directed it and it was super super fun it's been like a long time in the making uh, and yeah, so we're kind of like in the process of tying that up. Um, and then, yeah, I'm also in pre-production or rather like pre-pre-production because it's like still being written and we're still in post for the other project. Um, but uh, our next film I'll be directing and it's called Penny and the Poppies and uh, just kind of give you a idea of sort of what it'll be. It's um, a retro surrealist queer psychological horror. It's set in the swinging late sixties and it follows a three-piece girl group. Uh, so yeah, that's really exciting and fun as well. And I'm, I'm just really happy to be, yeah, making horror with my friends. Um, we also, uh, try and create content as well, as far as like discussions and panels, um, that, you know, platform underrepresented voices in the genre, um, talk about topics that aren't being talked about enough. Um, we also, you know, make like short little, like infographic style, fun content, um, as well, uh, just kind of like educational kind of like spotlighting uh women non-binary people queer people people of color um within the horror genre that have been underrecognized or even uncredited um that's something that's important to us too um and yeah we just we kind of get up to a fun time so we kind of go back and forth between you know creating like fun content online that we feel like is missing within the genre um content that you know we've wanted to see but haven't seen a lot of um, and then we also, you know, focus on making our films as well. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of, that's sort of what I do. Um, I, I've been so happy to, uh, have gotten more involved, um, in, you know, like the Twitter spaces and online spaces, um, in the past year and connect with people like you guys. It's, it's a really awesome, uh, there's support, so many supportive people, um, in this community, especially in kind of like the feminist horror corner, um, and yeah, I'm just, I'm really happy to be here chatting with y'all. Amazing. Yeah, you're so right. There is such a great community, horror community, feminist horror community on Twitter. Um, Lucy can definitely attest to that. Um, 
she's worked with some amazing uh, women and non-binary people to make Hear Us Scream. Um, and it's yes. just amazing, like, what you can achieve just, like, working together. Like, you've got so many amazing projects on the go, and it sounds like you're having a great time doing it as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's a, it's a blast. It's very, I feel like our, you know, interests within kind of, like, you know, social social justice and and progressive issues and also horror and and creating a more progressive space within the genre um it's such like a niche i don't know it feels niche like in the grander scheme of of life like horror itself is already niche to have a more specific niche interest it's really cool to find people that you know are are excited about the same kind of films as you and um yeah it's it's so great to connect with like-minded people exactly (laughs) Okay, jokes. Um, so let's get into our first film of our seventies horror sleepover. Um, Lucy, do you want to take us through Phantom of the Paradise, please? Yes, it's time to get funky. <laughs> yes. Twentieth <laughs> Century Fox presents Phantom of the Paradise, a gothic horror story. <laughs> What was that? A beautiful love story. A cinematic odyssey through the rock universe. From Greece to glitter and beyond. The story of a sound, the man who created it, the girl who sang it, the monster who stole it, and the phantom who haunts the paradise, the ultimate rock palace. Phantom of the Paradise. My music is for Phoenix. Only she can sing it. Anyone else that tries dies. Phoenix. Phoenix. Well, you told me one time that you'd be somebody that you weren't working just to survive. Man, you better get yourself a castrato for this. Paul Williams as Swan. And the angels that I want you to stop terrorizing the paradise and rewrite your cantata. And the Phantom. Phantom of the Paradise. There really is the Phantom, Phantom, Phantom. So the IMBD plot for uh, Phantom of the Paradise is as follows. A disfigured composer sells his soul for the woman he loves so that she will perform his music. However, an evil record tycoon betrays him and steals his music to open his rock palace, the Paradise. This film was released in 1974. The cast includes Paul Williams, William Finley and Jessica Harper, just to name a few. It was directed by Brian De Palma, and his other works include 
the iconic dress to kill, double body and the untouchables. It was also written by Brian De Palma and Louisa Rose. Now, I had never seen this film before, and I'm so glad that you chose it, Emma, because I fucking oh, love yeah. it. It's <laughs> Isn't like it wild. It is wild. It is the rock musical of my dreams, very reminiscent of like Rocky Horror as well. Mm-hmm. Um but Lindsay, I don't think you'd seen this before either. So what were your initial no, reactions? Me and Lindsay had a few conversations like, I've never heard of this film before, have you? No. And we were just like, <laughs> oh my God, what are we going to watch? And then as soon as I typed it into Google and I saw the words horror musical, I was like, I was my kind of girl. Like, <laughs> I was so happy. And like even happier after watching it. Because this film is a wild ride. It's so much fun. I'm now, so Emma, glad you guys liked it. <laughs> now, you've already mentioned that you were such a fan of the 70s as a genre for horror, like mm-hmm. stylistically, character development, different plot lines and all these kinds of things and just how horror as a genre developed throughout this time. Why mm-hmm. did you decide on Phantom of the Paradise specifically for tonight's 70s theme? That's a great question. I think it, it because it was a hard question when I was thinking like, okay, well, what do I pick? There's so many awesome like 70s horror films that I feel like really like reflect the times like I was considering like you know more maternal centric horror that sort of reflected the the Roe v Wade era something like The Brood or even Carrie which is you know after a uh, De Palma after Phantom of the Paradise mm-hmm. but I felt that this one was so like it it draws from so many cool interesting influences but then it also feels like a jumping point for so many other films um and also even just like De Palma's career itself which was really influential um especially with like Carrie like they probably shot that immediately after this which is crazy to me because they're such different films um but you know like this is even like it's like Jessica Harper but like pre-Suspiria it's um really glam rock inspired just just something I'm personally very interested in um and you know has so many folks just like within the cast that uh, the cast and crew that later went on to have really interesting uh careers um most of which like were horror focused even the costume designer um like Rosanna Norton worked on a lot of cool films worked on Carrie worked on Messiah of Evil um I think she even ended up winning an Academy Award for I want to say Tron um but like oh wow such a yeah uh which is a little more unrelated uh just like a random cool fact um (laughs) but this also it's kind of like a it feels like an American giallo almost um Mm -hmm. and this is like De Palma's not even really well known at this point Jessica Harper it's like introducing Jessica Harper she wasn't even really a, a a household name uh at the time and I think it's just really cutting edge and it feels so much like the 70s especially the early 70s that were really drenched in that like sex drugs rock and roll thing um I one just me also being in the process of writing a script that is dealt with like late 60s um like music scene culture um I'm just like particularly drawn to this one um and it's just so stylized and cool and interesting and I don't think that you could get that outside of the 70s and that like early glam rock influence and so it's kind of this you know you can see it being this early inspiration for Rocky Horror and just all these cool things that happened after it that probably wouldn't have happened had this not happened 
um, on top of just looking very cool and being really fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, you've, you've hit it on the nail on the head there and I'm sure you've got so many knowledge and like cool fun tidbits and facts about the 70s that you know if you want to jump in at any point please do because I'm sure me and Lindsay can learn a lot from you um but this is like I think this is the most 70s thing I've ever watched like I I, (laughs) right it's like a hodgepodge it really is from the score to the, the costuming is just so beautiful and one thing that I really like about this film as well is like the reference to other horror. So like, you know, there's the shower scene that's very reminiscent of Psycho. Um, There's the little nod to the cabinet of Dr. Calgary when we get the gothic kind of glam rock Mm. scene. And it's just fun. Like overall, this film's just a fun time. And I think it'd be, you know, a great film to put on for like a sleepover with your friends, spooky sleepover. It's just feel good. And um, yeah, I'm excited to get into this. So let's get into the plot. Um, So we start off with our singer-songwriter Winslow Leach. Um, He's heard by an acclaimed record producer known as Swan, um, and he plays an original composition following a set run by the 1950s-style nostalgia band The Juicy Fruits. I love this setup of this first shot because we're right into the, the musical action of it all, and it's just so 70s and so stylized. Um... What do we think of this intro scene? Um, Lindsay, what are your thoughts? Like, when you first watched this and we're immediately into the musical side of things. I just like how we're like straight into it. Like we've got the Juicy Fruits singing the song. And I just love all the, the bright colours. Like it's really ostentatious and in your face kind of. <laughs> and what do we feel about... Um, our characters so we have Winslow and then we obviously who's our protagonist and then we have our antagonist which is Swan um I love both of these characters um Emma how how do you how do you feel about these two oh I I think they're great I I think that they both what I like about both of them is that they're both really weird in different ways um like they both creep me out (laughs) in different ways like from the get-go um and uh especially like so Swan, who I think that's Paul Williams, right? He, yeah. Um, it's cool. He, he, I think he's the perfect person to cast just, I mean, even from his own musical background to doing this, um, that represents this like figure that was really prominent in the late 60s and early 70s um, in music when uh, rock was really taking this interesting direction and um music in general was becoming more of this. I mean, it's always been a part of uh, widespread entertainment, but it was taking on this new form. um, And just the music industry itself was becoming much larger uh, in general. And I think that there were a lot of creepy, controlling men. um, And it's crazy that they were able, I mean, I guess maybe it's not crazy, but um, it's, it's cool that they were able to reference that kind of archetype that we so heavily associate with that time period like the sleazy music producer um while they were practically in it um and you know just just that they were able to notice that figure and and, uh create create him so so vividly that you know it, it almost seems like one of those things that would be easier in hindsight because you can kind of play off of a trope but they were kind of creating the trope in a sense creating a figure that represents this kind of uh toxic behavior um and yeah I just thought he was so creepy and Winslow is such an interesting complicated fun character 
because you're like he's creepy he's weird but also like he's really like his comedic timing's super funny he's super great and I don't yeah I mean as you know of course as we get more into it um his arc is really interesting to me just the way that that character transforms I think that they're a hilarious combination of characters to kind of kick off the film with um and oh my gosh I agree like the set too I so much fun um again like the band's arc as well like that's something that I think is super fun and um there's all these like it's just such a great mix of like fun and campy and also really like actually fucked up (laughs) it's camp but it's fine but there is um a very serious plot line there as you as we're talking about you know in regards to toxic masculinity and the music mm-hmm. industry especially with execs and ceos and that it is very male dominated even now um absolutely you know there's been a lot of conversation as well on like tiktok about industry plants and things like that and um just the the money hungry ceos of of the world because i mean with with things like tiktok now it's quite easy to go viral when it comes to well not easy but with music there's a lot of like people that have gone undiscovered that they're now massive and then they get taken over by these usually men usually cisgender white men ceos (laughs) yeah it's like we have so many think pieces on that now yet we're just like well that's how it is though And Winslow's so interesting because the minute they were on the screen, I was like, "Oh, I I don't like I don't like this guy." There's some there's something here. They're very strange. I didn't yeah, I didn't off. know where it was. Little off, yeah. But then mm-hmm. like you really feel for them this as this goes on, and because I went into this blind, didn't know anything about these characters. Um, like it it's just a really interesting story arc. Uh, Lindsay, how do you feel about Swan and Winslow? Yeah, I think it's like really interesting like one of the main points in this film is about how like creepy and bad these high power execs can be like they want to have full control over everything and like one of the things about Winslow is that like he doesn't look like a star so he Mm -hmm. can't perform his own music and you still get that nowadays like a lot of our top performers are still like skinny white girls and mm-hmm. you know there's not a lot of movement from that and Swan just turns on Winslow as soon as he's like I don't want the Juicy Fruits to perform my music and you know yeah. it's his music why should he not get a say in that but because he's not following the script he's immediately disposable and that still happens and it's just like it's really sad that this film is what nearly 50 years old and it's like not much has changed yeah absolutely they really hit the nail on the head in 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 this film and it it's a really sad example of the fact that that you know we've had commentary about that specific issue uh you know since then since probably even before you know the early 70s and it's still such a prominent issue that it almost feels like everyone's pretty aware of it, but it's just one of those things where it's almost like we're desensitized or, you know, to be fair, I guess there's so many crazy things going on in the world um, that it's, you know, hard to think about all of the things at once. Um, but it's definitely like the entertainment industry, super, super toxic. So many issues that have just been unresolved and I feel like have almost just become generational um and and have have just stuck around because that's the status quo and you know if there's these cisgender white men at the top um 
you know, they're probably going, and if it's all about networking, you know, in that industry, especially, you know, at that level. And it's just kind of like, oh, my buddy can, you know, hop in on a gig or something. It's, it's usually they're going to recommend their other like white dude friend because they don't listen to other people. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, Emma, you were mentioning earlier there about, um, people being uncredited in horror and usually that is women or non-binary people or people people of color we see this in music as well I mean how many times do you know it, it takes a village to to produce music sometimes and we see a lot of songwriters like especially for big kind of like pop stars and everything mm-hmm. like that where like they're not given their dues or given any credit um yeah. so that's quite an interesting commentary as well but we will move on um so we have this scene with the juicy fruits um and swan believes that winslow's music is perfect to open the paradise his his palace his sanctuary that he's thinking about and he has his right hand man arnold um who's under the guise of producing winslow um after this scene it's one month later and winslow goes to swan's death records to follow up about his music um, he sneaks into his private mansion and observes several women rehearsing his music for an audition. And then these whole scenes as well are so interesting because it's that like male gaze, isn't it? You know, Swan is so like sleazy and there's the bed scene as well that, oh, that just makes me want to bulk. Like, it's just like, it, but we see that time and time again in, in the industry. Um and these women are kind of seen as indisposable. You know what I mean? Like they could be mm-hmm. so easily replaceable. Um, Lindsay, what do you think of these scenes? Like, I, you know, as Winslow's going up these stairs and there's all these women like desperate to get their shot. Yeah, like you kind of took the words out of my mouth there. Like it made me sick, like the the bed scene. Because oh. it's just, it's so, that's happened to so many women. Like oh, if you do X, Y, and Z with me, I'll give you the part, the, you know, whatever it is that they're really desperate for to do in the entertainment industry. And they've just been used and thrown away. And, you know, these guys don't care because they've got what they've want, their wanted, but then the women are left with, you know, the disappointment, the trauma, and all the rest of it from it. And, I think some people still think it's so innocent like I've had people ask me before like oh if you were asked a job interview for a job you really wanted to sleep with the person to get it would you do it and it's always a cisgendered man and they're always just like oh I would do it oh I would do it it'd be funny I'd do it and it's like oh it's not really funny when you're you know you are ogled like all the time Mm -hmm. um so yeah it's like another one of these things like as much as they do it in a very like stylistic way you know all the the women are dressed in these like satin camisole dresses and it's the circle bed and you know it still like brings up a very real issue that you know up until the Me Too happened in what 2017-2018 everybody knew it was happening but no one would fucking talk about it yeah yeah, absolutely. It it kind of reminds me of um, just like pop singer culture of that era, especially like French pop singers um, reference this like a ton that the music of that, like just that little time period where 
there were so many um, like marketing campaigns and photo shoots and songs that were all themed around um, uh, like like being doll-like and being a doll and you know there'd be like doll box photo shoots and like like you're a life-size doll and that always made me think about how at that time those women were literally being treated like dolls like actually being controlled like a child and treated like dolls they were disposable they were placeholders they were there because yes they were talented but I also fully believe it was about control and it was about them meeting beauty standards and being sold um sold this dream and while they were successful they also had to go uh to so many unfortunate extents just like this scene um shows to achieve their dreams to the point where that's what they thought was normal because it was and frankly is um but it was it was much worse then and there wasn't other avenues um you know there was really no such thing as as being able to successfully self-promote especially as a woman um you know when you think of like gig culture and going to play at bars you know back in the day especially back in the day it, it, that was very much not something that women found success in um maybe you could argue that that maybe in like an old old 40s country small town type thing uh that worked out but there was still so much objectification and so much of it had to do with what you looked like to lead to your success and you know these women in these scene are, are basically being told that they're they're being manipulated is what's happening um and it's really it's really hard to watch honestly it felt like this scene particularly was really visceral in showcasing all of that um in a way i wasn't really expecting um the bed scene is kind of overwhelming um it's so much and i'm like very much pro you know nudity in film i think that nudity in film is totally fine um and you know women can enjoy exploitation film and you know yada 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 that kind of thing but the way that nudity is, is used in this scene is really like really strikes a chord with you is the best way I can describe it um because yes it's kind of like they're being objectified but they're it's also telling this story about yes the film itself is objectifying them in this way but also that the scenario that they are in is objectifying in itself and it's just this kind of like super layered experience I think particularly as a woman to watch that unfold yet there's so many layers to this scene and nuances like as you said Lindsay kind of hit the nail on the head there as well it's so stylized it's so reminiscent of the 70s and we have like you said the the camisoles and there's the you know the the circle bed and all the pinkness and it very it reminds me a lot of Playboy at the time as well because this was the height of Playboy and I remember think maybe this time Hugh Hefner had his first like late night show as well and it was the height of Playboy Bunny and you know women kind of being seen as, as disposable it's like they could yeah. be replaced but there was the Playboy clubs as well like mm-hmm. in, in London and like in the states and stuff like that as well it's very reminiscent of that time and you know can see the women in this scene as well they they know they're being objectified and they're kind of playing into it but you feel for them because you know they're doing that because they feel like they don't have any other way of getting getting anywhere yeah absolutely it also kind of you know just with the early 70s um even though this isn't necessarily like a mother matron or maternal horror film in any way with any of those themes just I feel like like 
women's bodies um, were looked at so meticulously and and grotesquely in the early 70s because Roe v. Wade was a conversation that was happening. Um, and I think that that bled into um, kind of the way that we view how we view women, you know? Yeah. And even if we think about horror from the 70s as well, you know, we've, I think we've reviewed a couple 70s films so far on the podcast, but some of them, you know, th- there is that, it's always the tits out, isn't it? The kind of thing yeah. of like um, Friday the 13th, um, you know, Texas mm-hmm. Chainsaw Mass, even like Jaws as well, when we're going to be speaking about later. It's just that it's, and again, we're very like sex positive and pro nudity here, but when it's done just for, you know, it's it's yeah. not it's not for any other reason than for the male gaze. Yeah, what lens um, is it through? I feel like is the important question. It's like, it's not that we don't want to see bodies. It's like, it's what lens are we viewing it through? Does is there a reason, you know, that it's happening in this film? Uh, and and is it, you know, even in, you know, this is like an entirely different film, but even in X, which I saw recently, I felt like they did it in a really interesting, good, positive way. Like you can make a film about porn and it not be objectifying in a toxic way. I think this film, though, um, it is kind of complicated because you feel that the film is objectifying them, but you also can see the relevance to the film and the story itself. It's almost hard to say. I feel like it was a little bit of both as far as like the intention behind the camera. Yeah, it's making a commentary, but also playing into it at the same time. For sure. Um, So as uh, Winslow is um, sneaking around Swan's house, he meets Phoenix, an aspiring singer whom Winslow deems perfect for his music. He hears her singing and he's immediately like, you know, mm-hmm. love in, in love, love at first voice, at first listen to the notes of her voice. Um, Winslow realizes Swan's plan to open the paradise with his music after he's thrown out again. Um, in response, he disguises himself as a woman to sneak in and try to speak to Swan. This is when we get the bed scene. And Swan has Winslow beaten and framed for drug dealing. Um, and he's given a life sentence in Sing Sing prison. And this is when his teeth are extracted. They're placed with metal ones. Um, this was part of an experimental prisoner program to decrease infection, infection amongst inmates. Th- there's a lot going on in this bit. What do we feel about this? You know, Winslow's getting beaten and then we see him awaken. He's, there's like, I think this officer, it's like this quite intimidating shot and then he's in prison what would what, what we feel about all this that's going on I think that it's um uh, I mean I love this I, this whole sequence um I think this is where the film starts to like ascend into a very chaotic territory but that's <laughs> what I like about it um and you go from feeling really kind of like icky almost which again like felt in intentional but also maybe part of it was not intentional and I just feel icky um to then like oh my god like there's so much happening he's going on this kind of like rampage and running around and um I think it's a really fun way to and chaotic way to show what is a very chaotic transition um for Winslow and um yeah, it's also interesting just him and uh, uh, Phoenix, um, who's 
great. Like I think Jessica Harper is, is great in this. Um, I think that they're, their dynamic is interesting because at first you're kind of like you're feeling for Winslow and you're like he's the underdog here yeah but then you know as things start to progress he's sort of also taking on this sort of uh toxic mentality of then needing like wanting to then control this very specific person and then it starts to go a little bit beyond I want you to sing my music to like you need to sing my music um and so it's it's interesting I don't think and this is what I like about this film is I think that most of the characters are flawed in some way, shape, or form. Um, and that's like one of my favorite things in, in film is when characters are multidimensional and no one's quite just like the good one and the bad one. Um, although I think Phoenix doesn't do too much that's wrong. Actually, maybe that's a lie now that I'm thinking about it. Uh, but um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think that this is where you start to see some interesting dimension in Winslow and you're not really sure how to feel about him. Um, also just like a really fun action sequence I think above all like just as he starts to kind of go on his little tirades um I think that the more the more uh, the action in this film is is really exciting and kind of keeps you intrigued in between uh you know the music and stuff yeah they're all definitely like morally gray characters which I find really interesting as well because in in the reality of the real world nobody is all good or all bad mm-hmm. um and yeah this is when he gets in his descent of becoming more and more unhinged uh, yeah. probably the best way to describe <laughs> it Lindsay what do you think about this and also like um meeting Phoenix for the first time as well yeah it's like interesting when you described the way he's like in love at first listen it's like very Prince Philip and Aurora from Sleeping Beauty (laughs) (laughs) um this scene again like it frustrates me for all like the musicians out there who have no control over their music because that Swan's just doing what he wants with Winslow's work yet again and I like I understand why he gets so angry um, and then Swan has him thrown in prison for the rest of his life because that's what these big record labels can do because they have so much money like they really have the power to just like keep you under the thumb like that so I don't really blame him for like going completely off the rails to be honest but um, yeah it's a very interesting catalyst from here to where we get the phantom um later on yeah I I, it's almost like it's two different angles um showcasing male power really it it, it feels like Winslow and Swan are representing that you know this this omnipotent male power and control um from two different angles and in both situations um women are chess pieces they are moves to gain control and gain power because really Winslow's main objective is that he wants success. He wants his music to be sung. He is, you know, has this resentment towards Swan for, um, you know, kind of writing him off. And he's like, she has a good voice. I want her, but it's not about she has a good voice and I want to help her, you know, succeed. And I think we'd be good collaborators. Blah, blah, blah. It's, it's not about that at all. There, there's, ulterior motives all the way through strung throughout this um and it's just this kind of uh, uh this commentary between how you know ma- male power and kind of like climbing this ladder uh to i don't know what boost boost your own ego i guess 
uh, really in the end, that's, I feel like what it boils down to. You know, we have this um, trope, especially with probably younger women as well. And usually it's by men that say it's the pick me girl, isn't it? Winslow's yeah. kind of the male version of it's it's the pick me guy, isn't it? He's like, mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not like other guys. I'm different. But in reality, mm-hmm. he he's still after the same things. He has the same yeah. wants and desires as everybody else. Almost like a little incel vibes, but that yeah. might be just because he's a little strange. <laughs> I was going to say that, but I was like, oh, is it? But I'm glad you did because I was yeah, thinking yeah, yeah. it as well. We're picking up on the same vibes, even if it's just like a couple percentages of that. There's a little sprinkling. Just a little bit. <laughs> um, So we get another time jump. So now it's six months later and Winslow hears that the Juicy Fruits have made an anticipated hit record of his music with Swan's backing. Um, He escapes prison in a delivery box and breaks into the Death Records building. There's a guard that startles Winslow as he's destroying the records and the presses. Um, It causes him to slip and fall face first into a record press, which crushes and burns the right half of his face. I love this scene because it is so brutal. It's quite a creative way to do it as well. Mm -hmm. I think it's one of my favorite scenes just because it's, that's kind of that peak of like, okay, now he's going chaos mode. That is chaos mode. <laughs> it really is. This also destroys his vocal cords as well. Um, and he barely manages to escape the studio, falling into the East River as the police arrive. Lindsay, did you love this scene as well? And kind of the, this this is another big turning point for him. Yeah, like it all happens so quickly, but it's just like, I feel like I couldn't breathe as soon as his face was in that record press and it's actually like a really good special effect as well like it really does look like half the skull is crushed and faces burning off um Mm -hmm. so no I really I really liked it I mean consider yeah yeah, you're so right considering it's the 70s as well the the special effects in this are pretty damn good Mm -hmm. I have to say yeah they're they're really unique too like I feel like they put a lot of thought into what would be really interesting crazy ways we could do this that are it's just so unique I think overall this film is really unique um and it's really referential but it pulls from so many different you know we have like the you know obviously Phantom of the Opera and you also have like Picture of Dorian Gray and Faust (laughs) and then you have all this other like campy stylish glam rock over the top um almost like psychedelic really I feel like I'm feeling a massive psychedelic influence just stylistically um and all those things combining that sort of uh classic classic horror almost like gothic uh you know kind of energy mixed with this interesting campy fun goofy horror musical thing um just creates such a it's just an awesome breeding ground for I think these you know cool unique scenes like this and I was also thinking like oh my god I'm thinking about how the like set set deck team had to like reset all of that every time they had to do a new take I was like was that their only take because that feels like such a hassle to reset that would be such a pain in the arse hopefully it didn't have to do it too many times (laughs) (laughs) um so a disorientated and now deformed Winslow sneaks to the paradise costume department dons a long black cape and this is where we get like the iconic outfit of the movie he has this silver owl like mask becoming the phantom of the paradise which is real play on the phantom of the opera and i just love the the drama of it all there's so many iconic outfits in this like whole film but this is just perfection at his finest 
Um, he terrorizes Swan and his musicians, nearly uh, kills the beach bums, formerly the Juicy Fruits. They've now traded doo-wop for surf music. So I'm sure there's a lot of commentary about there as well, you know, in terms of rebranding and stuff like that. I know there's probably a lot of bands and groups that did that at the time as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that, Eva, in terms of, yeah, like bands rebranding and stuff like that in the 70s and stuff? I think that it 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 does speak to um, just the disposability of um, of a musical act at the time. Um, I mean, and and now I think you know you mentioned like oh industry plants like that kind of stuff like all of that kind of thing speaks to that these are these are pawns in um, you know a higher ups game um, and just there's there's I think you can even see within maybe just this is a comment on the whole film, but the costuming and the theatrical elements within this entire film and that, you know, that glam rock influence, I feel like that really pushes the narrative of the, you know, of symbolizing the decadence and the corruption of, you know, music as a business, um, you know, and, and that these characters are just intoxicated by uh, stardom and, and power and everyone's, everyone's getting something like the juicy fruits, you know, rebranding, like they, they want success. They're hungry for that. They're willing to do that. Um, and, and it's, it's not necessarily about the music. I mean, we, I think there's a lot of, I can't think of a specific example, but I've just, you know, I think of stories about, you know, like this, this pop artist is now suddenly doing, you know, like metal or switching genre. And it feels very, inauthentic while I'm like very much supportive of people doing a bunch of things just you know I think in some cases it, it, it can be very inauthentic um given how corrupt the music business is you know as a whole um and and that there's just this like I don't know it's very pervasive um but yeah yeah I I think that it it's interesting to me also just that the Juicy Fruits are a a male band I mean I think they're kind of referencing kind of like the Beach Boys kind of thing yeah um but it it is interesting to me I'm curious actually what you guys think just the dichotomy between the men and the women in this film because we do technically have this you know band of men that are being manipulated and 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 shape-shifted into all different kinds of bands uh because Swan is seeking that success from them I'm I'm I don't know. I'm kind of curious what you guys think about how they compare to like Phoenix or the other women, you know, women on the bed, the other women trying to climb this ladder. It's quite interesting. Like, I I don't know why. It just also reminds me a little bit of the 90s in terms of boy bands Mm -hmm. and the commoditization of boy bands like NSYNC and Backstreet Boys. And they were also, you know, sexualized and and turned into money making machines. Like, Lindsay, what do you think? Yeah, no, you're right. In terms of like boy bands and girl bands, like there'll be so many girl bands that we can't even remember from the 90s and the early 2000s because it would just be four or five random people brought together they'll put out like a one hit wonder and then as soon as they're not profitable anymore they'll just be like oh bye or they'll like split them up and try and make money out of them as solo artists um so yeah isn't it is interesting because I think nowadays it's more like oh the artist is trying to explore creatively now whereas 
probably in the 60s, 70s, possibly even 80s as well, they would have just been like, okay, we own you and you need to do this so we can make as much mm-hmm. money as possible out of you. Yeah, it's kind of like selling an identity in a way. Yeah. I feel like that's yeah. the best thing that they kind of represent in the, they represent that part of the music world as the, you know, I think a lot of the women in this film represent more of that, you know, that they're the pawns and that they can be controlled and shifted, but they, the juicy fruits are showing what happens when you are successful and, you know, kind of the, I guess the Madonna effect of, you know, oh, you always have to keep it interesting. You always have to change it up and try on new, you know, it's really costumes, uh, trying on different identities to, you know, keep up with the times to stay relevant and continue making money, um, not just for them, but for people like Swan. Yeah, exactly. Um, so after this, um, the fran- the Phantom confronts Swan, who recognizes him as Winslow and offers him a chance to have his music produced his way in a specially built recording studio. Um, Swan provides the Phantom with an electronic voice box, so it enables him to speak and to sing, because obviously they got destroyed um, from the, pre- the press. Um, Swan asks Winslow to rewrite his cantata with Phoenix in mind for the lead. Although Winslow agrees and he signs a contract in blood, which is very fitting, you know, it's like a deal with the devil kind of um, subliminal kind of uh, message there. Swan breaks the deal, um, saying that he resents Phoenix's perfection for the role. The Phantom completes Faust, but Swan replaces Phoenix with a glam rock prima donna named Beef in the lead of Winslow's Faust and relegates Phoenix to back up very shady um and then we get a scene which is like one of i think one of my favorite scenes in in this film um so swan steals the completed cantata and seals the phantom inside the recording studio with a brick wall but he escapes and confronts beef and there's this shower scene and he's got like the Mm -hmm. plunder on his mouth and this is just where he gets severely pissed off and he threatens to kill him if he performs it um Lindsay what do you think of this scene because it is it is a bit of like a piss take of psycho in the shower scene yeah I I don't know why but Beef's appearance in this film which I was the point I was like what the fuck is going on here like I remember <laughs> messaging someone I was like I'm watching the strangest film I've ever watched in my life characters of note include Swan, Phoenix and Beef <laughs> they're just like <laughs> what are you doing I don't know but but, um no I love this um like little ode to Psycho in this film um I love Beef as well I love how flamboyant he is like the way he performs on stage the clothes that he's wearing the glitter I I just love it Mm -hmm. what do you think Emma I love beef (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah yeah just what a fun character also totally like embodies the pervasiveness and the sleaze of um of that that era of that like glam rock and the you know just the pervasiveness of music um seriously feel like feels like a john waters character um i feel like becomes sort of you know when Winslow has this this arc and this shift, um, which I think is so cool, like the the voice box is such a unique 
interesting um thing to add to this character um and i love that scene i don't know i don't remember if this happens i think this happens when he's hooked up with the voice box and they start singing something when he's like plugged into all of these you know these these you know modulators and stuff and he has the freaky little voice and i just thought that was so cool but um you know as far as beef i i I feel like he kind of takes the place as sort of the comic relief once winslow has this kind of completed his arc into becoming this uh this character uh becoming you know the phantom um and yeah i i just think beef is so fun so ridiculous um kind of showcases a lot of what we love hate to love and love to hate about that era of music and that like that culture um you know kind of shows more of the like I'm a rock star I can do what I want and you know in like a really humorous (laughs) fun way um and yeah oh my god I love the shower scene that's another great horror reference um that they made in this and and I think it it works so well and it's also still unique like I love that it was it was very clearly made by people who love film and love horror and those are some of my favorite movies to watch um I, I think it's so enjoyable to you know not necessarily a ripoff but to notice like just little callbacks little things that um you know that that the horror fan would recognize and if you don't recognize it it's still like a good scene um but yeah the costuming for beef is so fun i love the pink curlers i love seeing the the costume department it's it's just it's so fun and it just adds to the glam of it all that that really amps up this you know the stylizing of this whole film exactly the glam of it all couldn't have said it better myself um (laughs) so yeah so after this uh beef tries to flee but is forced by Fibbin to stay and play with the band now called the undeads this is probably my favorite rebrand that they do they're um you know the glam goth act and this is where they kind of take a nod to the cabinet of dr calgary there's a little bit of a reference there and the makeuping and the costuming um and as beef performs the phantom is hidden in the rafters and strike and electrocutes beef with a stage prop um horrified um phoenix gets put on stage and an immediate sensation so you know this this was the phantom's plan all along you know get feet get phoenix on only wants phoenix to play his Mm. music um after this we get um another kind of difficult scene it is a difficult scene to watch swan um seduces phoenix in her dressing room after the show with promises of stardom um as she leaves she's spirited away by the phantom to the roof and he tells Phoenix his true identity and implores her to leave the paradise so that Swan won't destroy her too. Um, but Phoenix doesn't recognize the Phantom as Winslow um, or believes him and flees. And then we get back to Swan's mansion and the, the Phantom observes from above um, Swan and Phoenix, you know, embracing each other in bed and he's absolutely heartbroken mm-hmm. and stabs himself through the heart with with a knife, with a with a bowie knife there's a lot to unpack here and yet that scene when they're in the bed I'm just like oh he's just such a sleazeball don't do it but yeah yeah that's a rough one um because you know we don't get a lot of time in this film in Phoenix's head and I wish we did because I think that that would really amp amp up the whole film the whole um you know every all the messages that they're trying to you know explore in this film 
Um, but you can definitely infer, um, infer a lot. I think that, you know, Phoenix is, again, wants to be successful. Um, I think that it's a scenario where, uh, and I think this happened a lot, um, where women are, and, and not just women, but specifically women are manipulated by, um, by these execs to be like, yeah, we're like, we're in love, <laughs> basically locking them down. You know, Swan now sees how talented Phoenix is. And yet her talent is again, being, uh, uh used and abused, um, and, and commodified and, and, you know, taken from her, um, in a very, in a very quite literal controlling way with Swan, um, and you know it's it, it's it is hard to watch um, because you're like no like you you're like you want Phoenix to know better, but she has been kind of manipulated to a, a further extent um, than just oh I have to sleep with this guy. It's like no, he's trying to lock you down for life or for the time being. Uh, because he knows that he can make money off of you and that, and that that's what I get mostly from this but uh, it just sucks that you know then there's this literal like fly on the wall or phantom on the wall or ceiling I guess <laughs> um you know what watching and waiting and still being this additional omnipotent presence that wants her it's just it's this tug of war she's in this tug of war and she while her talent's been recognized and she's probably riding high on the validation of that um she's being completely controlled and manipulated um and and that's that's what hurts the most (laughs) it does and i think my and this is probably my only gripe with this film because i do really like this i just wish we had like you like you said i wish we had more time with phoenix because i mean this is a relatively short film as well i think it's like an hour and a half and just to find out her thought process a little bit because i mean we i think especially for AFAB or just women watching this film we can understand that with not necessarily without being said because you know as all the reasons we've already mentioned but it'd be nice just to have that solidified and confirmed through Phoenix's eyes the process that she's going through think you know thinking like the hunger for fame but also like you know the manipulate being emotionally manipulated by Swan, and there's so many different layers to that relationship. Like Lindsay, what mm-hmm. do you think? Would you have liked to seen some more scenes of Phoenix just to kind of understand what she's going through? Yeah, it's well, it's such a good point that we don't really get an awful lot of time with Phoenix. Um, you know, and especially in this scene because we see her being manipulated by Swan, really into being intimate, and then the phantom is on the roof watching and then like just after this he he tries to kill himself and it's like it's a bit much really because it's like how would you feel as a person if someone killed themselves because someone you met once killed themselves because you kissed somebody else like because that's the reality of what's going on right now and it's it is really intense so it would be interesting to get more of phoenix's point of view on this like did she even really register winslow's existence like who really knows like yeah what does what does she actually think about all of this because 
yeah, like the Phantom has like a lot of feelings <laughs> for someone that he's just really met. Yeah, it's scary. Mm. Honestly, it, it, it's, I, I feel like it speaks to Winslow's low self-worth, mm. feeling mm-hmm. like she is his only shot at validation um, in, in himself. He feels that he has no creative validation. He doesn't know how to self-validate. Um, and he, on one hand, like he believes in himself as an artist, but feels that he needs um he needs something from others and he's like really feeling like she is his chance um again not looking at her from her point of view of you know well what are her goals what does she really want what's you know good for her but purely through a selfish lens and it's sad because it is through this lens of low self-worth um you know most likely uh and um yeah, I don't know. It, it it is just really sad, and and it's it is it's really intense to watch, um, because he is just, I don't know. It makes you wonder who Winslow was before this film as well. Yeah, um, like I'd almost love to see some kind of prequel, um, because we kind of, I mean, we see a little bit, but we mostly just jump right into him, you know, having these ideas and and wanting to get signed and that kind of thing, and you know, kind of being the the tortured artists but in a really creepy way that is <laughs> u- utilizing women to propel his career putting out in the universe let's get a phantom of the paradise prequel we would yes. all watch it <laughs> yes would love that um, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. So Rolling Stone announced the wedding between Swan and Phoenix and the Phantom learns that the Swan made a pact with the devil in 1953. Um, so this is how Swan remains useful forever unless the videotape recording of his contract is destroyed and photos of age and Fester in his place. So if that happens, the age will, will show. Um The tape reveals footage of Winslow signing his contract with Swan and a new one Swan made with Phoenix. Um, On a live television camera, the Phantom realizes Swan is planning to have Phoenix assassinated during the ceremony. So he destroys all the recordings and heads off to the wedding. Um, During the wedding, the Phantom stops the assassin from hitting Phoenix, who instead shoots and kills uh, Fiblin. And the Phantom swings onto the stage and rips off Swan's mask, so exposing him as a monster on live television. A crazed mm-hmm. Swan attempts to strangle Phoenix, but the Phantom intervenes and stabs him repeatedly. So, what do we think of this whole bit? And like, I love the special effects as well when the Phantom rips off the mask and we see Swan like all aged and gross, and there's the the marks from the mask. Like, it's really good, mm-hmm. isn't it? Oh my gosh, yeah. It's it's so much fun. Um, and, you know, just just thinking about that, like the vulnerability of of, you know, and the symbolism behind him being revealed as this monster. Um, it's really sad when you think about it because it's like you know he has a victim mentality. Mm-hmm. And it almost goes to show how toxic that can be. Um, especially when you're leaning into vices that aren't based on you know based on any kind of self-worth and it's purely based on like power and control and um you know then again he's kind of following attempting to follow swan's footsteps attempting to follow what is the status quo um you know and and like like i have to have you know a successful 
female singer to uh to control whether it's a subconscious thing he's recognizing um or just that again like that's the status quo to then do that and 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 then you know eventually he, he has so much resentment built up throughout this entire film um that it just pops and then after feeling like the victim the whole time he's revealed to be you know this monster and it's just like this wild story of of Winslow's shame I feel um and also just kind of almost shows the life cycle of uh kind of you know the man at the top um Swan you know I I feel like Swan used to be a Winslow in a sense um and that they all kind of learn from each other and it and then it repeats and uh Winslow I think Winslow of course has some downfalls and and you know some are more successful than others he's trying to fight he's fighting this power so hard but not for you know the good of others or to create a you know a healthier music industry by any means um he's fighting you know just for himself and i feel like he's you know one of the cases of this not going in his favor i feel like usually it probably would but um it's just it, yeah it's it's interesting and it's it's a sad story to see it is and I hadn't really thought about how Winslow and Swan are very similar to each other and Swan you know Swan can probably see himself a little bit in Winslow he he probably was a Winslow you know probably had a lot of passion and drive for the industry before um got into the dark seedy side of it all made that pack with the devil and there's probably a lot of commentary there on about ageism in music as there is in a lot of industries and especially for women it's like the minute you turn 30 yeah you're done um, yeah (laughs) it's funny like um because Lindsay I know you probably watched X Factor as well I think we spoke about this before watched X Factor as a kid and there's a category in the X Factor because it'd be like singers and they'd have these different categories and the one of them was like over 25s and they very much made it in the show this thing where it's like they're really old these are the older generation and the older group so weird do you remember that yeah like I would watch it with my mom and even my mom would be like oh yeah you know once you're over 25 you're past it it's so hard to make it after that and it's just like we all perpetuate this idea as a society that after the age of 25 like that's it you're done you're over the hill or something and it's just ridiculous um so crazy yeah um, I love the little nod to picture of Doreen Gray in this mm-hmm. part of the film with um, Swan's like anti-aging wish. Uh, and yeah, I kind of love, it's maybe a bit on the nose, but I love this whole like signing a deal with the devil because it mm-hmm. probably, for so many people who have tried to make it in the music industry, so they will have their signed a deal with the devil um, story. Um and even at this time as well, like I'm sure the Beatles, like well the the surviving Beatles anyway, don't have rights to some of their music, or at least mm-hmm. they didn't at one point in their career, which is crazy because they wrote it and recorded it all, but they didn't have the rights to it. So it very much will feel that way for some musicians that they'll feel like they're signing their souls away in the bid of trying to become some sort of success. Mm-hmm. exactly I mean look at the whole and I don't know a lot about it but look at the whole thing with like Taylor Swift as well and getting rights back to her music and everything like that as well 
Oh, uh, we love a petty queen. Yeah. We record all that music. Yeah, <laughs> um, so a craze swan attempt. Oh yeah, we already said so. Um, the phantom's own stab wound reopens, and he starts bleeding from you know um, earlier when he was stabbing himself in his heart for Phoenix, who he barely knows. Very very dramatic. Um, and as he's dying, Swan is carried around by the audience who join in the mania, stabbing him. The dying Winslow removes his mask to reveal his own face and holds out a hand to Phoenix. Swan dies, allowing Winslow to die of his own wound. And as Winslow succumbs, Phoenix finally recognizes him as the kind man she met at Swan's mansion and embraces him as he dies. Um, before we get into our final thoughts and ratings and the box office stats, I just wanted to go through a couple little fun bits of trivia that we found. Um, so as I kind of mentioned before as well, but like I immediately got Rocky Horror from this because when you think of rock musicals horror, it's 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 immediately the thing that you think about. Um, so Phantom was independently produced and sold to 20th Century Fox, anticipating that it'd be a huge hit. Fox uh, greenlit Rocky Horror as its follow-up. Um, but both films actually did really poorly in terms of the box office and Fox, you know, tried to revive them as like a double bill, but obviously they ended up as like cult classics. And I just thought it was quite interesting because mm. um, I know Phantom of the Paradise is a cult classic in its own right, but I hadn't heard of it before this, but it's quite interesting. Both films kind of flopped at the box office and now like yeah. loved immensely by the community. Yeah, that's also so interesting that Rocky Horror was actually greenlit to intentionally be like this follow-up assuming that this would have massive success and it was kind of the other way around yeah exactly um I'm just having a look at some other bits of trivia um so a couple other considerations for Swan was actually Mick Jagger oh my god (laughs) that would have been amazing too yeah absolutely um, and the Palma considered hiring either the Rolling Stones or the Who to portray um, the the Juicy Fruits, but the price was too much to hire them. But that would have been iconic. Uh, I mean, they're great I, anyway, but still, right? That would have been so good if it was like the Who. I feel like they very much are that. I don't know. I love the Who. <laughs> that would have been so cool. And um, the Beach Boys were actually supposed to play the Beach Bums which would have been good fun. So yeah, as you said there, you can see it straight away. That's that's just kind of the main ones I wanted to go over. So we are going to go into box office and ratings. So this film had a $1.3 million budget, which is pretty hefty. I mean, considering the 70s as well, if you calculated that now, that's a big Mm -hmm. budget. But it only made a quarter of a million initially at the box office. So it didn't make any, you know, didn't didn't make profit um it was box office failure but um it earned praise for its music receiving um academy award and golden globe nominations um in terms of ratings so imbd give give it a 7.3 out of 10 the rotten tomatoes critics give it an 86 percent audience give it 84 and the metacritic give it 67 metacritic always is like the harsh arseholes mm. of, of of our yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. ratings research but I don't care what they think I care what you guys think so <laughs> I'm gonna start off with Lindsay because obviously this is Lindsay's first watch of the film what are you gonna give Phantom of the Paradise at a 10? 
I am going to give Phantom of the Paradise an 8 out of 10. I really enjoyed this film. Um, I thought it was really interesting watching it. Obviously, it's an adaptation of Phantom of the Opera. And for people our age, Phantom of the Opera, the first thing we think of is going to be the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. And I really loved that there was this entirely unique take on the 1910 novel in the 70s. Um, and I think it's sad that more people haven't watched this. I think maybe if something like this came out now, more people are more familiar with Phantom of the Opera because of the musical. Maybe it would have been a bigger smash, whereas back then they just had this 1910 novel and then the next biggest film was the 1925 adaptation with um, Lon Chaney. So Phantom of the Opera wasn't as big a property, I don't think, back then, which is just a damn shame because this film is so much fun and if you haven't seen it yet you should definitely watch it yes and emma what are you going to give the film out of 10 i think i'm so i'm that person that's like very like in my brain afraid to give something like a 10 out of 10 or like a five (laughs) stars like i'm very like does it deserve it um so in my brain i'm like 9.5 because for some reason I had like that point five. I don't know. I don't even know what the point five is reserved for. Um, however, I'm going to say a 9.5 to a 10 on a good day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because I'm so indecisive. Um, I think that, you know, just like we talked about, like, not only is it referential, but it's also deeply unique um it's you know it, it, the setting of uh, uh just like the music business and the industry and performers like that's been done in film but this is the first time I've ever seen it done like this um I think the commentary is really strong and really relevant to the time period it was made in which probably makes it stronger um and just you know personally it has all the elements that I love um in film and I will also say I'm surprisingly not a big like musical girl even though I I used to be when I was like in high school but for some reason I lost that I love music but I'm I, I have to be really sold on like a, a musical um and and this did it for me I thought it was so well done um I've watched it with people who hate musicals and I'm like just try it and then they loved it and it was you know it, it's not even necessary like the music is used in a way that propels the story um, and and just the pacing is immaculate and like the timing of everything and the sequences and the cinematography and I mean the highlight of the film is just the costume design and how uh, uh, it's like this over-the-top outrageous glittery empty style of like classic glam rock era um, and, and just the way that that represents um, this kind of like sensuality and intoxicating stardom uh, in, in the industry, um, I think is great. So like every element feels super intentional, um, really well thought out. And it just feels like a lot of love was put into this film. Um, even down to like the casting, the casting was brilliant in my opinion. So I love it. It's, it's one of my top films for sure. Um, and yeah, I guess I'm a bit biased cause I technically picked this one. <laughs> so like, yes, I like it. Um, <laughs> well, that's but, fair. Um, yeah, but yeah, it's great. I love it. Yeah. Maybe, I mean, 10 out of 10 today, just, it's a good day. 
<laughs> I'm so glad you said that because I'm always kind of like, I don't want to give 10 out of 10s because that should be on a rare occasion. And throughout this recording, I've been like, I'm going to give it a nine. I'm going to give it a nine. But no, fuck, I'm going to give it a 10 because I fuck start, it. <laughs> I really, really enjoy this film. I honestly think this is one of my favorites that we've um, watched for the podcast so far. Like, I'm a huge fan of horror comedy and musicals and anything campy. And mm-hmm. I feel like Phantom of the Paradise is so underrated. This is camp at its finest, but it also has a meaning and a message behind it. And I think it's very easy for films of this time as well, you know, looking at it a 2022 lens, sometimes you can look at things with rose tinted glasses and look and think, oh, this is, you know, this isn't really right anymore. And don't get me wrong, there is some of that in this and sometimes the language, but I really have to be nitpicky with this to to find kind of faults in it. I think, like you said, it was made with so much love. I can't not give it a 10 out of 10. And anyone that's (laughs) listening please get this watched even if you aren't a fan of like musicals if you love horror if you love fun and just yeah, campness and style yeah exactly um but we are going to move on the spooky sleepover is going to change over to a cult classic jaws and Lindsay, take it away there is a creature alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill. A mindless eating machine. It will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him jaws. This is Universal's extraordinary motion picture version of Peter Benchley's best-selling novel, Jaws. I just found out that a girl got killed here last week, and you knew it. You knew there was a shark out there. You knew it was dangerous, but you let people go swimming anyway. Did you see that? It's all psychological. You yell barracuda. Everybody says, huh? What? You yell shark. We've got a panic on our hands on the 4th of July. Is it true that most people get attacked by sharks in three feet of water, about 10 feet from the beach? Yeah. What we are dealing with here is a perfect engine, uh, an eating machine. We're not only going to have to close the beach, we're going to have to hire somebody to kill the shark. Bad fish. But I'll catch him and kill him. Did you hear your father out of the water now? This shark swallow you whole. You're going to need a bigger boat. That's a 20-footer. 25. Three tons of them. Hurry up, he's coming straight for us. Don't screw it up now. Don't wait for me. Now! Shoot! Shot it! 
none of man's fantasies of evil can compare with the reality of Jaws. Roy Scheider, Robert Shaw, Richard Dreyfus, Jaws. See it before you go swimming. So the IMDb plot for Jaws is as follows. When a killer shark unleashes chaos on a beach community off Long Island, it's up to a local sheriff, a marine biologist, and an old seafarer to hunt the beast down. This film came out in 1975, stars Roy Scheider, Robert Shaw and Richard Dreyfuss was directed by Steven Spielberg, who has directed countless things you'll already know, such as Schindler's List, E.T., Saving Private Ryan and Jurassic Park, and was written by Peter Benchley and Carl Gottlieb, and Peter Benchley also wrote the novel, um, which this film is an adaptation of. Um, So, Emma... What is your familiarity with this film? Was this your first time watching it or have you seen this a million times before? Yeah, I I think the first time I saw Jaws was probably like, it had to have been when I was like a teen or something. My dad is who really got me into films um, and he would, you know, show me all of, you know, what he deemed the classics. And I think Jaws was one of them. Um, I also had like a, I don't know if you remember in like, 2012 when like those like almost like muscle tees with like really large like arm gaps where yeah. uh, like, armholes were cool I had like a <laughs> Jaws one of that from H&M and I wore it everywhere which I think I got before I even saw the film but um I felt very cool uh so I was very familiar with Jaws because I was like being fashionable um <laughs> but um yeah I, I think I, I watched it uh with my dad as a as a kid or as a teen or something and um saw it again recently um like in the past year uh which was I think I viewed it through a different lens I think because I you know of course have grown as a as a film lover and as a horror fan and so I had kind of this new appreciation for it and you know knowing just the the impact it had and the um within the 70s and um how it you know not only shifted the horror genre but also shifted how um like film was received by the general public really um i i think it's it's a really impactful film and uh it's it's definitely something that i think everyone needs to watch at least once um regardless of you know what genre you like it's it's one of those films um especially if you like 70s horror just even if it's not your type of film or um because i know a lot of people that are you know they're like oh you know jaws is overrated blah blah blah. um it's still shifted so much it's kind of the it's the groundwork for so many films um and there's a lot in it that is quite masterful and so um yeah i i love jaws and um it's definitely one of those like yeah i've seen i've seen it i've seen it a good amount of times um you know whether it was like forced uh by my my dad or (laughs) or something that i watched on my own accord (laughs) What about you, Lucy? What are your interactions with this film been? So I'd only watched it the once before because it was one of those films, like you say, if you're a film fan, it's always like you have to watch the classics. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like 
Citizen Kane or like Sunset Boulevard and Jaws is one of them and I remember I'd watched that I think it was like in my first year of uni and I remember really not liking it I was put right off it um but I think watching it now a little bit older and especially being like a bigger horror fan and like having a lot more knowledge about horror I can really appreciate the impact it's had not just on horror but in film in general like you know the dolly zoom shots and everything like that score all that it's still not my favorite like I feel I feel weird saying that sometimes because like Jaws is like there's so much hype around it you feel like if you don't like it you're the odd one out um but I can definitely appreciate it a lot more now kind of watching Mm -hmm. it and what it's done for the genre because yeah like everyone should watch it as you say at least once to appreciate what it's done for film yeah yeah and it's like if you hate it you hate it but now you can tell people that you watched it when they're like so they don't have to be like you haven't seen john (laughs) yeah (laughs) i was put off watching jaws for a really long time this i might this might be a complete like figment of my imagination but I remember seeing adverts for Jaws on TV when I was younger there must have been a 20th anniversary Mm. cinema release of the film um, in 1995 so I would have been like three coming on four and just seeing it all the time and being terrified of sharks as a result so I was really put off watching it for a really long time um so I didn't watch it until I was in my early 20s and I was kind of similar to you Lucy like I thought it was like all right um but watching it again for the podcast I'm like I've kind of fallen in love with it again like I really do love just like good acting and when you have people from different situations having to interact with each other and the whole second half of the film is just that really these three men from three very different backgrounds having to come together to deal with this problem and it's just really fascinating to watch I think um but yeah if anyone looks slightly older than me can confirm that because I was (laughs) seeing those adverts on tv made me so scared of sharks for years and um yeah I'm sure when this film came out the PR team for sharks was just like well it's (laughs) fucked now (laughs) well yeah we're we're fucked um yeah I, I this film is really interesting I feel like everyone while it's like this sort of universally recognized film is like oh it's a staple everyone has quite different opinions on it or different things that stand out to them like the dolly zooms or something I'm like like it's just so good and in a way I also feel that this film takes a look at masculinity in a different way than you know Phantom of the Paradise but in a way um you know it's 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 kind of the dichotomy between these three men for the most part um and they're all very different and it breaks it down in a really interesting way um yeah and something that sticks out to me too just throughout this film is something that I've come to really appreciate is the, the very intentional use of color um, in the you mm-hmm. know, production design, costume design, just like general art direction. Um, you know, it can be as straightforward as like, you know, red representing blood, uh, you know, which is classic, uh, but you know what? Love it, you know? Like who's wearing red, who's seeing red, that kind of thing. Um, but also there's like a lot of yellows that, uh, I think it could be interpreted in a different way, but I've always interpreted it kind of like a caution sign or like a warning. Um, but there's a lot of really interesting color coding that feels very intentional, um, which I, I also see 
even more particularly in a lot of later 70s uh, horror films like The Brood actually um, that I feel wouldn't have had that kind of intentional production design um, without, without Jaws. So it really was this crazy jumping off point for so many films. Okay, so let's get into this plot then, shall we? So the film opens with Chrissy Watkins um, coming away from her group of friends um, with a boy in tow, deciding to go skinny dipping. He passes out on the beach and she is having a right good old time frolicking in the ocean when a shark comes and attacks her um one one of the most iconic kills in horror um what do we think of this opening scene i love that we start off so strong and start off with a kill because i didn't realize to watching this and i think i messaged you as well i forgot how long this film is it's like fucking mm-hmm. two hours um and it's a bit like it's not a slow burn, but there there is a lot of dialogue in this film. I think a lot of people think that Jaws is just going to be action packed, but there's a lot of character development and different relationships, and there is quite a few kills. I think there's like six kills in this, but over the course of two hours, it's not as much as you'd think. So I'm I'm glad that we start off with that action, and mm. we get a lot of suspense built up. But to start off with the fear, and you know, a lot of the audience is probably expecting that. I can imagine in the theaters at the time because there was so much hype about this film to start off with the horror I I enjoyed it yeah me too I I think that especially like you said like for a longer film um longer films can really benefit from you know kind of sprinkling the action throughout um because I I think that you can do that and and maintain that suspense you know there's there's still this climax that you're building up to and this you know integral conflict um but that it kind of gives you something to be nervous about you know like like watch out for and I feel like that's what this does pretty successfully um I think that especially because the first act of Jaws can feel a little bit um slow because that's where you're really starting to kind of you're laying out the exposition you're kind of building up to this um greater conflict um doing that in the beginning I feel like jolts you out of feeling like it's happening super slowly I think it really aids that first act So in accordance with the medical examiner's conclusion that Chrissy died of shark attack, we meet our protagonist, Martin Brody, who is typing up the report. Um, Later on, he is met by the mayor and um, the coroner who try to persuade Brody to change the um, death certificate to a boating accident because they don't want to put off people coming to the island in the summer because this is where they make all their money. Um, who else was getting uh, 2020 flashbacks here uh, to <laughs> the beginning of the pandemic and no one wants to shut anything down because yep. it's going to mm-hmm. cost us all money. It's such a frustrating scene to watch um, because as we see time and time again, people people's health and safety doesn't matter compared to keeping people's wallets nice and chunky. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that this, it's crazy how this film does so directly mirror that same kind of cognitive dissonance um, where it's just like, 
this thing that you feel you're like that's literally not possible so it doesn't exist but like it, it does exist and we should really address it but because we haven't you know if someone hasn't seen it directly affect them then there is this dissonance where it's like why would we why would we do that when we could when we could have money um which is not a great way to go about that at all um but yeah, it is that classic like why is he being stupid like why like, why are you making that choice like you know what's about to happen um and I kind of like that they jump into that pretty quickly it's very much a Tory mindset you know think of the economy <laughs> yeah. uh, it was quite interesting as well as like you know looking at the trivia for for Jaws there was like apparently after it got released there was a lot of beaches and like tourist beach destinations where people didn't visit after this because they were so terrified um and it's kind of interesting that it had that effect you know not that it planned to you know that kind of um plot line there it was quite interesting (laughs) tourism actually lost money because (laughs) Jaws (laughs) yeah so um after this um, and Brody ex- agrees to their decision. Later on, a young boy is killed by a shark attack in full view of the whole beach. So unlike Chrissy, it was at night, nobody saw anything. But this young boy, Alex Kittner, is killed in full view of a crowded beach. And I think Roy Scheider is great in this film. He like tends to play like everyman type characters. And he doesn't say anything, but you can just see the guilt on his face. He's like, I, I knew I had evidence that Chrissy Watson was killed by a shark and I've I've let this poor boy be killed. Uh, and it's it's hard to watch, really, I think. Yeah, I feel like this particular sequence is really, it's really intense and probably was one of the more particular scenes that contributed to people being afraid of going to the beach. Yeah, <laughs> um, for sure. Um, I also think that it was extremely provocative for its time, like that specific moment, um, especially with involving a child um, and it being this, you know, because again, it's like the monster is something that exists in our world. It's and and it was through this um, this terrifying lens and really taking the fears of people to um, to an extreme extent. But it felt so, I think Jaws feels very tangible. Like, And maybe that's the, again, that 2022 lens of post-Jaws where we've grown up to think that sharks are super scary. Um, even more so ever since Jaws, it like super impacted, you know, like you had mentioned, like how people view sharks. Um, but it's very much a real world fear. And so I feel like scenes like that really tapped into something that hadn't really been explored to that degree um or that you know i mean it's kind of grotesque in a way uh that that we just haven't seen before um so it's it's interesting to see how people reacted to that because it was the first time they're really you know seen something like that yeah even now um you know what 40 years on um that scene is still really hard it's difficult to watch because there's some things like in the human psyche and in horror and film where it's like it's no goes it's taboo and one of them is dealing with children and death you know it's not something anybody likes to see and 
also the fact this is in the daytime I love horror that's based in the daytime because everyone thinks it's about the monster that goes bump in the night and horror set at night so the fact it's in the day and it can happen to anyone and like you say in the grand scheme of things this could happen to anyone that goes to a beach you know it's it's quite scary because you can put yourself into that reality um so yeah it's a the very shocking scene I can imagine very shocking in the, in, in 1975 for the audience especially mm-hmm. yeah, yeah a lot of films don't go there with kids like at all at yeah. all um so there's a town meeting and Alex's mum a uh, pits up that a notice saying that she will give money to anyone who brings her the shark dead that killed her son um also at this meeting we are introduced to Quinn who is just kind of seen as this like eccentric crazy old man like nobody really takes him all too seriously um and it does come across as a bit of a odd eccentric kind of character um what what do we think of Quinn in this scene I think that he he's very much like the um kind of like the traditionally macho figure but he is again viewed through sort of this like doofus lens which is really funny so it's kind of making light of that kind of archetype um whenever I think about him I think about him like this just the sound of him running his nails down the chalkboard (laughs) and I'm like oh and I'm like oh it's awful fear for me like I think I decided I hated that sound because of that scene (laughs) Um, but yeah, I, I, I like him. I I think he's a really interesting, you know, figure to add to this, um, you know, that dichotomy of these, these three men. Um, and he's not really, he's, he's not like, you know, big tough guy necessarily. He just like thinks he is, you know, and he's like acting as if, uh, but really he's kind of just like a goofy mess, which I like. (laughs) Yeah, it's quite funny because he's trying to play into this trope, but in reality, he's he's not. He's, he's, not he's just <laughs> no, it's just a bit of a doofus. And I think that's nice to have a comic relief like that in a film like this, where it is quite high stress a lot of the time, yeah. and there is a lot of suspense building. So I think you need a character like him in this. So, um, sure. yeah, enjoyed it. So Quinn offers his uh, shark killing services for ten thousand dollars. But the, t- the town, the mayor in particular, still kind of being in denial about their shark problem, just dismiss him. And um, yeah, they just dismiss him and decide to just let um, the local fishermen deal with the problem. So in the meantime, we have an oceanographer from the mainland, uh, Matt Hooper, who decides to help out Brody and examine Chrissy's remains and he confirms what the medical examiner confirmed right at the beginning of the film is that Chrissy was killed by a shark and a very large shark at that. Um, so th- then we move on to all of these local fishermen and even fishermen from out of town as well like we see them come in on the ferry and uh, decide that they're gonna come and try and claim their piece of um, Mrs Kittner's reward fund for this shark and they catch they do indeed catch a shark uh, but it's a 
tiger shark. Um, I don't know about you guys, but having this shark like hung upside down, it's kind of bleeding and all the rest of it, it made me feel very uncomfortable. Like I know people like to do fishing and hunting and stuff for fun, but I prefer them to do it in more ethical ways and this just doesn't feel very ethical to me at all. Yeah, I'm completely in the same boat. I think that it's, I don't know, like animal cruelty, fake or not, is a tough one for me when it comes to film. Um, and I, I think that it's very, again, it's provocative for sure. And, and I think that what they were trying to do with Jaws was have what feels like a really simple um you know simple story structure simple plot you know it's like gonna go fight a shark but then taking it uh stretching it out really to this extent where there's all these really pervasive and and provocative uh uh, set pieces really um that to to shock an audience and i think the good thing about having um a film that has a relatively simple overall um, you know, story structure like Jaws, not to say that Jaws is like super simple by any means, but just, you know, the kind of where they're placed and just sort of the whole, the beats are relatively straightforward. Um, I, it, it gives you the opportunity to then really stretch and lean into these provocative things. But, uh, and, I, and I think that is kind of, you know, again, it's like we're in the seventies. It's like this time period where, uh, I mean, just like any time period, really, where, you know, society is reflecting on its condition and its concerns and horror films are, you know, reflecting the widespread societal feelings of anxiety and fear. Um, and I, th- I think that the way that Jaws was made was intentional to explore this this shift in popular culture. I think that, I mean, really, I guess, after The Exorcist, you know that's that's what really shifted things um and probably had a massive influence on how jaws you know approached its story and approached its shock value um and saw its shock value um but yeah i feel like the early to mid 70s um or really you know late 60s onward really like politically volatile time um and i think it 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 does check out to me that there would be these kind of like shock value moments um i'm sure that you could argue that there is some prevalence to it as far as why like a shark like a, a dead bleeding shark would be shown on screen um but i'm i don't know it's memorable but i don't know if it was necessary um yeah i don't know it's a tough one for me because i'm all for like shock value and like crazy you know, stuff in horror, but yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of the same way. Like it adds up to me, but like, I personally am not loving it. <laughs> yeah. I'm also not a fan, but um, again, it's one of those taboos we spoke about when it's showing like children and, and death in, in horror. Animal cruelty is something that nobody likes to see, whether you're yeah. vegan or you're a meat eater, nobody likes to see animals like that. Um, and I feel like there's maybe like a little bit of a, I don't know if I'm reading into this, but there's another message here. Obviously, everybody's fearing um, these sharks and they feel like they're being hunted and preyed upon, preyed upon, but 
humans can be just as bad when it comes to that and it shows the kind of dark side of humanity as well when they're hunting that you know this tiger shark is an innocent shark it's not the one that's been killing people and it's you know died on the hands of humans and how many times we see people being cruel to animals as well so it's that kind of two sides of the coin um so that's quite interesting but yeah it's not a nice scene to watch you know it's quite brutal (laughs) so once the shark's been caught the mayor proclaims that the beaches are once again safe um at this moment um Mrs. Kittner, Alex's mother, gives Brody a right smack in the face because she finds out that there was another shark attack and if he had closed the beaches then her, her son wouldn't have died, which again is it's, it's another hard one to watch because we saw the pressure that Brody was under to keep the beaches open and essentially cover up what happened to Chrissy. Um, so Hooper says that he does not think that this tiger shark is responsible for the attacks. He's like measuring the mouth and stuff and he's like, no, this shark's too small. And him and Brody even go to the extent of later on that day, cutting the shark open to see what's inside its stomach uh, and do not find any Alex. So that confirms to them that this tiger shark did not um, kill this wee boy or essentially Chrissy either. Um, they go out on the boat and um, Hooper does some deep sea diving and he finds this half-sunken vessel that has giant teeth inside um, some of the holes of the boat, uh, which is evidence to him that a shark has attacked this boat. But fortunately... Uh, corpse gives Hooper a scare and he drops the teeth and just comes back to the surface so as much as he has seen evidence of this great white shark he has no proof to convince anybody on this island that they they need to close the beaches um I got a right big fright when this corpse <laughs> came out and did you were you as affected by the jump scare as I was I bloody did. I was like, oh, all right. Um, I because up until this point, it it's gotten quite slow at this bit, and this is kind of the point where I was like, oh, I'm gonna like go on my phone or something. You know, you get that point sometimes in film where you pick up your phone and stuff. Um, but this is adding the suspense element again because we don't at this point we don't you know see the shark, but we get kind of indications of how big it is, and then to have that corpse kind of jump out of you. It is quite scary. I do like this. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I, I think that um, you kind of hit the nail on the head there with like the timing of it. I think that the timing of that happening was very much needed um, for the pacing of this film because I think that it's always like this whole film is very much skirting the line of like could go into like, you know, pacing's too slow mode, like losing people's interest. But they always kind of bring you back with something really woo, like shocking and um I thought that was a great moment um also just in general like the set builds and the set pieces in this kind of um this portion of the film uh like on the boat and stuff it's it's so cool um and 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 super impressive um just like from the cinematography to how they you know arranged everything um I was really impressed with that and thought it was super fun but yeah I think this is a great moment and it also is kind of like Ugh, like 
your heart sinks for him because you're like you you also feel the pain of you know the the politicians not wanting to hear the inconvenient facts from you know the science expert and this science expert just being like I, I like I finally have the thing to show them that will prove this and it just kind of literally slipping through his hands um but yeah it's a great sequence it's kind of like oh you know twisting the knife a bit um but I think that's good I, I for the film I, I think that's kind of exactly where that moment needed to happen so um Brody and Hooper take this knowledge that they've learned to uh, the mayor, but because they don't have any tangible evidence, he completely dismisses their concerns about a great white shark and he refuses to close the beach, but allows for increased safety precautions. Um, so it's 4th of July weekend and like my heart was racing when you seen all those people come off the ferry like there are hundreds of people coming if not potentially thousands like a big ass boat uh, all coming to Amity Island to enjoy the sunshine to enjoy the beaches um, nobody goes into the water at all at first and it just makes me feel ill when the mayor is trying to convince this older couple to go into the water and yeah. then they grab their grandchildren's hands and they all go in together <laughs> just like no <laughs> oh um, yeah. were you similarly like upset at this scene <laughs> yeah it was like it, it's at this point in the film that's where the kind of uh uh moment of, of building tension where the audience knows something that you know these people don't uh really works really effectively but in a way that does make me really stressed out and sad and I was like please no like <laughs> but I mean I think they all do such a great job it felt very intentional um and yeah especially with it being like oh like grandparents and then also kids like wow they're really they're really just driving it home with this one uh which was great and also depressing. <laughs> I've never seen so many people on a boat in my life. It was like sardines, like squished <laughs> together. Nice yeah. social distancing happening there. <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. But uh, yeah, it just adds salt to the wound, isn't it? First it's grandparents and then it's the grandchildren. So it's just kind of like, oh, please, no. Um, and you're just like, it's really building that anxiety, isn't it? Because you're just waiting for them to get attacked. Um and I do, I do, I do like this scene. And yeah, I just want to know how many extras were on that boat because yeah. <laughs> so many people. So, many. <laughs> so after this older couple and their grandchildren make the the death-defying leap into the ocean, uh, many people follow. Um, but two young boys decide to play a prank on everybody they swim around with a shark fin and everybody comes running out of the water which again is like it's so scary there's so many people you see people being trampled like I don't know if anybody died I don't think anybody dies here but someone could have died being trampled in the water oh, yeah. like you can drown in like a teaspoon of water or something daft like that so people could have been trampled to death people could have drowned like it's really scary and it's also something the mayor probably didn't account for uh, when he's so absolutely convinced that there's no shark in the water at all. It's not even just the shark that is a danger. It's 
people's fear that is a danger as well. Um, so everybody comes running out, but while there's all this commotion in the actual ocean, the great white shark has gone into this like estuary area and kills a man on a boat and uh, causes Brody's son to go into shock because he was also on a boat with some of his friends. Um, what what do we what do we think of this? Because this is really how we finally convince the mayor that there's a problem, and this leads us leads us into the events of the second act. Yeah, I I think that it is kind of this this moment where it it does represent sort of the like okay the the mayor gets it but gets it a little too late which again very much reflected in the past few years uh of of our time but um yeah i think that that's funny this film is very much i mean it's not funny it's literally a direct you know influence from this it reminds me a lot of um piranha which i think actually came out not that far after this but i think literally couldn't have happened without jaws um very very much directly the same except it's a piranha um i was just thinking about um like the mayor's involvement and the um the amount of people because i remember watching piranha as well and thinking like how do they get so many people for this um which i guess is kind of part of the uh um i don't know adds to the chaos of this particular film especially with when you're utilizing an outdoor location and you don't have you know crazy production design and you know yada 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 um but anyways yeah I, I think that as we turn into this um there is sort of a sense of relief of like okay at least at least the mayor gets it now but um it does really invoke a lot of panic I I felt when uh you know from when everyone was jumping off the boat to um even even just the um the kill of the the man on the boat um it invoked, I feel like, a new fear in me that I hadn't felt earlier in the film um, because it started to feel like things are starting to get out of hand, um, which I really like because now at this point in the film, it doesn't feel slow. You're kind of like, I don't know where this is going to go. Um, and I thought that that was really effective. But yeah, it was, this is where you start to feel that chaos and um, kind of reignites you back into uh, the world of the film and you're now in this new territory that you haven't been in before which is okay we're aware of it but things are starting to get a little bit crazy and people are clearly fearful especially with you know like the kids playing the prank and that kind of thing um there is still this sense of of fear and maybe even delusion across uh folks in the town um just because it feels so unreal um so you can imagine there's a lot of different uh ways people in the town are processing all this information and it's creating a very hectic environment and i feel like that um that kind of mass panic was represented well in these you know few scenes that are kind of transitioning into this next act yeah definitely i feel like these scenes you know from the boat like the boat coming in with everyone and then up until the boat the boat death like we don't really get a chance to breathe it's just constant like it's constant chaos but we've been building up to this moment because it has been a slow burn up until now and it is a, it's a it's a brutal death as well and i find the 
you know, like you said, Lindsay, like people can easily get trampled and mass panic is really scary. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of other films that we've watched, but there are ones where, you know, people are, they're just thinking about themselves and they need to get out and then you can see people getting trampled underneath them. That's a very real thing that could happen. Um, and just thinking of pandemic world as well and mass panic. I mean, it hits pretty close to home with everything that's been happening over the past two years. Um mm-hmm. But but there is that sense of relief that the mayor is finally like fucking getting his head out of his arse and actually recognizing there's a problem. He's not in denial anymore, but it shouldn't have taken all of this to get to that point. Um, but this is really where it switches a gear and we are really getting into the nitty gritty of the film and really seeing our great white shark at its finest. So having convince the mayor to sign over the money to Quint to go and chase the shark um, Quint, Brody and Hooper all set out on Quint's boat, the Orca to go and hunt the shark and I really love the second part of the film because we really get to know these three characters a lot better um, so we have Brody who's kind of like the audience's point of contact point of view in this film um he's scared of water but he's so determined to do something he goes out anyway uh we have quint who will find out a little bit more about his backstory later on and we have hooper um hooper and quint's like kind of rivalry is really interesting to me because it's very much like the old way versus the new way like quint's very familiar with these waters and he just has this knowledge just based on being someone who's been out in the water their whole life, whereas Hooper is like all about the tech, uh, has a gadget for everything, and he also is very knowledgeable, but he's maybe a bit more reliant on this technology than someone like Quint is, and they, they kind of clash a little bit over whose way is the right way, where is as we know with any progress it's like there's somewhere in the middle like you need the knowledge and the gadgets help and it's somewhere in the middle that is a really the right way if there if there is such a thing Um, you can see that in a lot of trades can't you where it's like things get updated not even just updated due to technology but there's like the traditional way of doing things and then as new generations come in they'll come up with different ways of doing things and there's that um that conflict isn't there yeah definitely yeah Yeah, for sure and I I feel like you can also just see the kind of differences between um you know just the ways that they they are having a hard time setting aside their egos to hear each other's sides out and actually come to a conclusion they're just like I need to be right which is not helpful no (laughs) But that's (laughs) typical men for you though like whereas women like tend to listen and um like come together to try and form some sort of plan like men are just like I'm right I know what I'm doing listen to me (laughs) (laughs) um so the three of them concoct this plan that they're going to harpoon the shark and um attach flotation battles to it so they can follow it and try and prevent it from diving as well um so 
on like the first day on the boat they managed to do this the one time but this shark is so big so strong that it's able to pull it under and they assess that this shark is 25 feet long and weighs around three tons so that's that's quite a big shark it's a pretty big shark that's pretty freaking scary um so this is probably like my favorite scene in the film um night falls and the three men all kind of drunkenly exchange war stories um Quentin Hooper are showing each other their scars and telling the story behind them and we find out more about why Quinn is the way he is and it's the fact he survived an attack on the USS Indianapolis Uh, him and his colleagues were delivering uh, the bomb that would go off at Hiroshima and uh, they were attacked by Japanese naval forces and they were all left out, out on the water for days and him and his colleagues were attacked by sharks and um, their mission was so top secret that nobody even knew that they were there so they were just left there for days and um you can completely understand why he is the way he is after hearing that like war is bad enough without um having something so horrible and traumatic happen to you mm-hmm. just to go back a minute just because it's we actually spoke about the lighthouse last week me and nick when we were talking about i don't know how we got onto it when we were talking about hannibal and hotel transylvania but yeah. <laughs> the, the, the 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 drunken kind of scenes in this where we get a little bit of um kind of like comedy between the three of them. It reminds me of the lighthouse when, when they're having the little drink and the dance, like Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe having a wee laugh. Um but it's it's you know it's a very tragic tale, but it's nice to have that character development as well because I mean trauma, PTSD, war, you can definitely understand why he is the way he is because of what you know what he's gone through. Be brutal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, one of my other favourite things about this scene as well is just a uh, paper Richard Dreyfus is just staring at Robert Shaw with his mouth open and that wasn't that wasn't him being Hooper, that was Richard Dreyfus just being in complete <laughs> awe of Robert Shaw. Yeah. Um, like, oh my god. <laughs> basically, yeah. So while they're having this moment uh, the shark returns and starts ramming the boat i think one of the things that's so scary about this film is that it, it feels like the shark has a fucking vendetta against these people yeah it really does which is maybe fair because the shark is like watching its relatives getting literally shanked open right in front of them they're like that's my vendetta <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Um, so, like, he's ram the shark's ramming the boat. It's disabled all the power. Brody tries to call the ghost, the coast guard, and Quinn is just like, absolutely not. Smashes that phone up, and he's like, wants to kill that shark himself. So they continue this um, plan that they have to shoot the shark with barrels. They shoot it with one barrel. They shoot it with two. Um, it's still dragging it down. They shoot it with three, and that's what somehow manages to keep it like near the top of the water. Um, 
that shark's not fucking stupid it starts to chew its way <laughs> through the ropes that's attaching it to the barrels and um, because it does not want to get caught by these three people um while all this is going on the boat is flooding it's getting pulled like here there everywhere like there are parts there's some parts in this that I literally cannot breathe watching it because I'm just like what the fuck is gonna happen next I don't know about you guys yeah I I always have a really like visceral reaction to like rising water Mm. in film and seeing the boat start to flood I'm like "Uh uh-oh uh-oh like (laughs) they're going under um like getting trapped in a room that's filled with water worst nightmare ever um and so I really felt that fear too just like from the scene um and again just like shout out to the production design the way they have built this set to um not only be able to shoot in it but to flood it (laughs) uh I think is really awesome um you know now you know this is kind of like the midst of this epic you know man versus nature battle and um I think it's great I mean I think that they all kind of like really even amidst like they 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 all have different tactics like like I guess what I'm trying to say is like the three men throughout the film are very much like they have their own distinct personalities and kind of mm-hmm. archetypes of, you know, masculinity and how they go about things. And um, even when they come to um, like a conclusion and they agree on like a plan, it still feels that they have, you, 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 you still see, and this, I guess this is just in the acting, uh, you see their uniqueness and their quirks and their uh, specific tactics that they personally have of fighting this, this battle um, still come through even when they're, you know, working on their own plan which is of course crumbling kind of before them uh and and seeing it begin to kind of descend to this new level of chaos um I think it's really effective I think it's 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 good it kept me intrigued I was really nervous for them at this point and I felt that and I knew that that was I I I feel that I've seen so many I don't know maybe back in school when they would force us to watch like bad historical reenactment videos or something like seeing a boat flooding and it was not intriguing whatsoever um and not to say that movies all movies with a boat flooding feel like that but this particularly felt way more visceral um and kept me interested uh more than I feel other films have yeah the the water rising is also a fear for me as well because I'm not a strong swimmer at all I can barely do a doggy paddle so if that happened to me (laughs) I'd be fucked you're done for (laughs) (laughs) it reminds me a little bit obviously it was more recent film but when we covered crawl with Enola quite a few months back it reminds me of that you know it's just this these two creatures that are so set you know they are going for these people and they're going to stop at nothing and it feels like an almost unstoppable force um yeah so it's just very anxiety inducing love that love this bit I think it's probably one of my favorite scenes because there's just so much going on and um yeah you just fear for them don't you Mm -hmm. absolutely so as the shark continues to try and drag this boat down um Quentin Hooper sever the ropes that the shark is attached to and Quint decides to try and draw the shark towards shallower waters but however the engine fails um 
leaving them up shit creek once a fucking again. <laughs> so <laughs> the orca is sinking and in an, in a last ditch effort, Hooper is like, I'm gonna go in my shark proof cage and decide to try and lethally inject the shark. Which on paper sounds like a great idea, mm-hmm. but um it it does not work. Like we were saying before, it feels like this shark has a vendetta against these people. It crashes into the shark-proof tank, ironically, and again, Hooper drops the equipment, so he is unable to try and subdue this shark. Um, I must say, I, I know that I, I watched shark documentaries, and those sharks are nothing like this shark that's in Jaws. So I would actually love to do a uh, swimming with sharks, like you get put in that cage, and they're just all like cutting about in that. Like I would love to do that. I love sharks. Really, I like can't tell if I would do it or not. Like it's one of those things that I've like never, I just never put thought into doing it. But now if I'm thinking about it, I'm like, what I like is that terrifying? Like that feels terrifying to me, but I'm also like, maybe, maybe I would just throw myself into that. But I'm also like, what if they eat me still? Like, even though I know, I'm like, what if? (laughs) I know, like, there's one part in the film, they're just like, oh, they're attracted to the way you kick when you're swimming. It's like, yeah, that's because they think you're a seal and then they taste you and they're like, and swim off. They're like, you're gross. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. You're both braver, braver than me because I absolutely would not do it. <laughs> hard What's, no, hard pass. <laughs> I think it's because of the cage as well. I just feel claustrophobic, even though it's there yeah. to protect me. A cage me. in water. That's mm-hmm. just like my control issues. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> it's too much. That's like the sharks aren't the scary part in that situation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, the shark like thrashes about in amongst this cage actually um i was watching i think it was the kill count or something for this film and this husband and wife like shark expert duo filmed loads of like actual shark footage for the film and at one point it's very unusual for this to happen but a shark did end up getting like caught in amongst the shark cage and the people behind the film were just like this is too good not to use so they incorporated this into the story and um yeah like this scene where hooper is and the shark is like caught in amongst the cage is like so good because you really think at this point like that's that's him away it's just brody and quint now um Mm -hmm. but we'll see later on that that's not the case so the shark is like breaks free of this cage and as this boat is sinking it kind of launches and makes a and makes a beeline for Quint and he is he kind of goes in the exact same way he talks about his friend in the story he talks about seeing like half of his friend he'd been like cut off from the waist down and that's what the shark does he kind of like bites bites him at the waist and it's it's sad to see him go like this, but it's also like kind of inevitable with his own vendetta against sharks. It's like mm. it was it was him, it was him or Bruce, it was him or the shark. And uh, unfortunately at this point it is it's Quint. What did we think about Quint's death? I think it was it was his time. <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, it was his time. Someone had to go. I, I think that it's interesting that he his character 
had a lot of unlikable qualities, but mm-hmm. he was also the comic relief. So you're kind of you kind of like grow fond of him. Yeah. But you're also, but he's still unlikable enough to kill off. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think in writing, it's really interesting, you know, to strike that balance of you want for a character's death to feel like a payoff. There has to be something that's a little unlikable about them. Mm-hmm. But when it is really impactful is when you it's someone that you actually have grown fond of in a weird way yeah um no spoilers but it makes me think of the killing eve finale <laughs> oh i it's too soon too soon i'm, I'm, so, like... I'm, sorry. I'm so sorry we're grieving i know yeah <laughs> that's a bonus episode <laughs> yes um i completely agree with what you say there because like as much as he's an unlikable character you do like grow fond of him as time goes on especially after you learn about his backstory and everything after they had the drinks on the boat and stuff like that um and it's kind of poetic in a way that he's gone in the way that he saw his friend go and it's really brutal and this yeah. the, the effects in this are really good because like bruce is going for it it's a really scary scene um but i feel like we needed that as at this point as well because you know some of the deaths we don't always quite see the shark and like actually seeing him and actually seeing the kill happening like that rather than just yeah. like the blood in the water and stuff it's um it's really good and I'd I'd have loved to see the audience's reactions to that in the theaters on the big screen because they probably have never seen something quite like that before um yeah that would have been interesting all the yeah. screams of terror <laughs> For sure. Yeah. They're, I mean, I'm just thinking like, oops, sorry, random alarm just went off. Um, (laughs) It, it probably is something where, I mean, it's just, you don't have like a reference point for that. Like going into the the theater, um, you know, opening week to see Jaws. It's like, I guess you have the exorcist, but I also doubt that everyone that saw Jaws had seen the exorcist. Like there's so little material that truly leaned into, you know, the kind of shock and the kills and the gore that this film does lean into. Um, so yeah, that, that would be so fascinating. I, I feel like I haven't had really that experience in my lifetime. I guess I'm sure in some way, shape or form, I've you know obviously experienced new things. I guess the tech boom for, you know, like our generation is probably the most interesting, like new thing. But as far as film goes, like, I don't think I've had an experience of going to the theater and being like, I've never seen anything like this before. Like, this is a new, I can't believe, you know, this is a thing maybe that's just because I like really gory stuff so I have like no threshold for like what a film is showing me um but yeah definitely something interesting I'd I'd love to I wonder if there's anecdotes out there of like how people experienced that so we have this scene of really like that finishes off Quint's character arc where he ends up in a literal confrontation with sharks and then we have Brody, a man who is afraid of water, alone on a sinking boat, uh, trying to think of a way to deal with this shark. Um, you know, one of our one of our shark experts has just been killed by a shark. The other one at the moment is at the bottom of the ocean. Brody doesn't know whether he's living or dead. Um he decides to shove this pressurized uh, air canister into the shark's mouth. And that, like, I think we all know at this point that this 
is a very unrealistic death for the shark. But one of the things that was getting me on the second watch is the fact that the shark just like kept it in its mouth and it was like chewing on it like it's like a toothpick or something. You know how people sometimes have things in their mouth to chew on. And it's just like, why would a shark do that? But because we've also seen that it's not, it's intelligent, you know, because it managed to cut the rope from earlier because it knew it was going to get caught. So maybe it's just one of those things where it's a... Suspend your disbelief. Yeah, for for the plot line. Just a little bit. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) So um, the shark is swimming around with this thing in its mouth, this pressurized air canister. Brody climbs up to the crow's nest with his gun and he's trying to get a nice clean shot at this pressurized canister so that he can kill this shark and like i must say as much as it's like completely unrealistic there's several youtube videos about how this would absolutely absolutely would not happen the explosion mm-hmm. is fantastic like yeah. it is that satisfactory ending that you've been wanting for this for this shark, this evil shark that's terrorizing <laughs> these poor people. <laughs> so um just as this happens, Hooper resurfaces. Um Brody tells him that Quint has died, and then they both paddle back to Amity Island with the help of these flotation buoyancy things. And that's that's the end of the film. Um how like are you are you guys happy with this ending or would you have liked to see them go back to Amity Island and see what everybody says or do you think actually no this is just perfect like we've spent the last half of the film with these three people I don't really care about anybody on the island yeah that's it's interesting to think about that like was the ending satisfactory I definitely see the value in ending it there um you know we kind of have completed our our arc um I think there is part of me that's like the film wasn't because there there are films that are you know have a smaller scale sort of um uh story arc and it ends feeling like you wish you had a little bit more but you're also like satisfied like yeah that's where the story should have ended this the only thing is that this film has so many other components especially in like the first and you know second act um that does make it feel ever so slightly incomplete um just because they spent a lot of time like world building um and and i do a little bit wish that there was some other element that completed it it would be interesting to see like i don't necessarily know if i'd want like a oh and everyone's happy again now and maybe that's was sort of kind of like well how do we end it if it's not that or this um but yeah I'm definitely intrigued about other ways to end it that feels like the world is a little bit wider um but I guess you know as the film goes on we really narrow in onto these two characters and everyone else kind of floats away a bit so it does make sense I'm kind of I'm torn on it I I like I don't hate it personally I don't hate it but I definitely would be interested to see what else they could have done had they done a some kind of larger ending or kind of epilogue type ending. Yeah, because I mean, especially because this film is two hours anyway, it's like, 
you could have added a little bit you know another scene or two at the end if you wanted because it's a long film anyway I'd have been interested to have known if Spielberg had in his mind that he was already going to do a sequel I mean because there's what four films because like the way it ends even though Brucey or Shark is dead we obviously it's set up in a way where it's got a sequel ready to go you know if you wanted to explore those I've never I don't I've not seen the sequel so I don't know if it follows those two but it it would make a good you know it would set it up for a sequel with those two characters at the end if they played it like that um but like you said Emma there is so much world building it would have been nice to seen the impact of that with the mayor as well you know with everything that's happened and um they're worried about the tourism of yeah. of the area and to then have all this death and destruction it'd be interesting to see how they recuperated from that but I get why they've ended it the way they have it's very dramatic isn't it kind of for sure to kind of play into that whole second act so yeah I do really like the ending I think yeah it, it's just like a nice happy ending and like it just like you were saying how it just closes off like those two character arcs really nicely but I know Lucy loves extra details <laughs> so I was curious to see what you would think okay dose. so Jaws was made on a nine million dollar budget and made 472 million dollars at the box office at one period in time this was the highest grossing film ever uh, I think it was taken over by Star Wars A New Hope in 1977 um it's one of the first films ever to gross over a hundred million dollars as well like this film was fucking huge and it really invented the summer blockbuster as well Mm -hmm. like we have this massive summer period of the movies which is going to start next month and finishes in like September now it, it just keeps growing and growing and growing every year and this film was the one that started it all off uh which is kind of amazing yeah that's so crazy the amount of like money that they put into marketing for this is just so wild so uh the ratings imdb rated this an 8.1 out of 10 the rotten tomatoes critics rated it a 98 percent, and the audience a 90 percent. and metacritic rated it an 87 percent um emma what do you rate jaws out of 10 hmm okay this is a hard one i think that i you know it's so much of it comes down to like personal taste for me and things that i really want to see like explored in film and that kind of thing like when it comes to you know determining like a rating for a film but there's so much impressive groundwork here that I have to give it credit, you know, credit where credit's due. Um, you know, I, I think that I am going to give it a 7.5 out of 10, all things considered. Um, you know, like, like my personal taste for a film, I feel like it would be more, a more of a, a seven leaning, but I think that for, what they were able to achieve in just as terms like the production as a whole and how all the elements come together and how like the cohesion of it uh even you know the pacing I think that they solved a lot of pacing issues within it or that issues that could have like arisen 
I would give it, you know, more like a, like an 8.5. So that's what I'm going to 7.5 feels like a good average. I'm clearly very weird about ratings because I can't make up my mind. So very weirdly specific numbers there. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I totally get where you're coming from there Emma, because there's so much that you have to give credit for this film for, even if you weren't a fan of it. Um, initially I was thinking a six, because I mean I do like this film, but it's just not my kind of film. Like you know, if, you know, certain films aren't for everyone, and cre- like creature features aren't my favorites. And it's funny because I love a long, complicated film, and I like a slow burn. But this one just wasn't for me. Um, but I am gonna bump it up to a seven just because, like, from score to cinematography to set design, um, you know this film has had such an impact on film as a genre not just horror like you can't deny what it's done so and like you said Lindsay for like the summer blockbusters like that's like a tradition we have now and it's one that I love dearly as well you know how many franchises do we wait every summer for another edition of it to come out and Jaws was kind of the pioneer of that so like all things considered I'll I'm gonna have to give it a seven I'm going to rate Jaws an 8 out of 10. Um, just really based on a lot of what you guys have already said, like this is absolutely absolute revolutionary film. It's inspired countless filmmakers, countless parodies. Um, it's definitely a film, like if you love film, you absolutely have to watch it. Um, and I just, I love the second act. I think the acting amongst these three men is absolutely incredible I was looking it up and it, I disgusted that none of them were nominated for any kind of Oscar or anything um, but yeah I think this is like a must watch for everyone it's not going to be everyone's cup of tea I do tend to like those kind of intense like person person to person chat like going through issues kind of things I love those kind of dramas but they're definitely not for everyone but um, yeah I a proper rate this film is so I do uh, <laughs> so that is that's 70 night, 70s night over and done with um, whoop, whoop. next week it's Lizzie's birthday yeah. and for her birthday this year she's decided to torture me and make me watch the first two Twilights <laughs> you've never seen them I've never seen them I've avoided that shit like the plague but it's gonna be my time to watch it next week (laughs) I'm kind of looking forward to it to be honest like I'm actually hoping I love it I'm so excited because you know how much I low-key unashamedly love Twilight it's such a part of my teen years and I have such a nostalgia for it so getting your perspective on it like fresh eyes on it is you know an an actual adult rather than a teenager with raging hormones and like seeing all this on screen (laughs) it's gonna be great so I'm excited for it oh very excited so you've got that to look forward to next week Emma where can people find you on social media yeah, uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Matzo Ball Emma. That is M A T Z O Ball Emma. Um, <laughs> and you can find my uh, film collective, Monstrous Femme Films, on Instagram at Monstrous Femme Films. And then on Twitter, we are Monstrous underscore Femme because Monstrous Femme Films was too long. 
Um, and yeah, definitely. Um, I'd love to connect with you guys. Um, oh, and then my, my podcast too. It's um, at die podcast on Twitter. It's D Y E and at to die for podcast on Instagram. Um, and yeah, I love uh, talking shop with the uh, fellow horror fans. So definitely feel free to hit me up. Let's see, where can people find you online? You can find me on all the socials at Lulu underscore Pew. And um, I don't usually plug my editorials, but my latest editorial for Hear a Scream, um, I analyze the final episodes of Killing Eve and it's re- how it's related to Bly Manor. And I'm really proud of that editorial. I, I like I had so many thoughts after that finale. I messaged Kat straight away and said, I need to get this out. Um so yeah if you're a fan of Killing Eve and have lots of thoughts and feelings about that finale go check out that editorial on the website I am at Lindsay underscore on all social media you can find the podcast at girlfriendpod on twitter and girlfriends underscore podcast on instagram we'll be back with another episode next wednesday and until then stay spooky